You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and with me today as a special guest is Ralph Macchio. He's back again for, I think this is the third time now? He is such a great sport and a pleasure to talk to, full of information, and he has such a great knowledge of so many different titles because he's worked on pretty much everything. Today, in today's episode, we are going to be talking about his lengthy run editing Thor. We talk briefly about the time that he was writing Thor, but the focus of this interview is the time that he was um, editing during Tom DeFalco and Ron Frenz's run. We touch a little bit on Walt Simonson and a little bit about the people that came after, like um, Warren Ellis. But yeah, the focus is Tom DeFalco and Ron Frenz. So anyway, before we get to that, I just want to give a quick plug for our Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash thunderquack and give us a, a couple of bucks to help us keep this podcast running and keep me bringing these interviews to you and bringing these review episodes to you. Uh, we can use everybody's support to keep us up and running. Otherwise, you can check us out at facebook.com slash epicmarvelpodcast or follow us on Twitter, epicmarvelpod. We have Twitter polls and we have great conversations going on on Facebook. Or you can email me at epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. So anyway, that's enough from me. Now you get the privilege of listening to Ralph Macchio. I thought I'd talk to you just kind of about, about your whole career in Thor, because you were on that title for a number of years, I think. Writing and editing. Over 100 issues, I think, close to 150. Yes, yes, I believe so. I, I know that I wrote, um, uh, co-wrote issue 300 and worked on it uh, somewhat before that with Roy and Mark Grunewald, and then I edited issue 400. Wow. So I was on there all the way through. And, uh, and you almost made it to 500 as well. I, I did a really, you know, I, I really haven't checked it recently. I just recall that, uh, you know, certainly the 300 was a landmark for me and Mark. We were so happy to, to bring that whole celestial saga to a conclusion. And then 400, I, if I remember correctly, that was that was the story that had uh, Odin and against Seth and, and all yep. that. And that was another, yeah, right, big concluding chapter. And Ron drew that brilliantly. So, yeah, and we did, did so much fun stuff. I, I love working on Thor. The, the whole mythology behind him all the supporting cast the villains the the landscapes all of that have just intrigued me probably more than anything else um in comics i just uh, just love the whole thing so it was you know it's been a privilege to work on that character and to work with all the people that i did you know co- co-writing with mark grunewald working with walt working with tom and ron you know whoever it was just uh, it's just been fantastic and even even my later run just before I left staff full-time, I was on Thor for a while, too. 
right. um, and and I had a lot of fun there too. So it was, uh, you know, always always Thor always drew me back, always did. So why were you asked to co-write issue three hundred, and were you happy about that? Because it's like this is my chance to write Thor. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had done an issue before that too. What oh, had okay. happened was Mark Grunewald and I had um, gotten together with Roy because Roy was the uh, had, had, was writing Thor. And so we, we kind of um, worked as, as sort of co-creators in, in a certain sense with Roy in that book, um, almost, I guess, like Steve Sherman and, and Mark, what's his name, were with Jack Kirby on their stuff. You know, we would throw some ideas at Roy and such, and we stayed on during the um, that Siegfried saga, The Ring of the Nibelung. And then um, Roy left uh, after 299, so we, we kind of uh, rolled 300 by ourselves. And I remember Mark coming to me saying, hey, you know, we're Roy left and we have no plot for 300, really. So we realized we had to not only conclude the Ring of the Nibelung saga, but we also had to then conclude all the celestial saga stuff that we had with, uh, with Odin and, you know, on the tree and the, and the whole thing. So it all had to come together. And I remember even asking for um, extra pages in that story because we just we wanted to give it that sense of scope and grandeur that it deserved and that the readers deserved after, you know, following that storyline for so many issues. But we couldn't quite do it in the pages we had allotted. So we got several more because they were just big images that we wanted to show. So in the end, it, it did come out the way we wanted. I was very pleased with it. Mm-hmm. And this was when uh, Keith Pollard was penciling too, right? Yes. Did you enjoy his, his uh, interpretation of your, of your writing? Very much. Uh, Keith and I always got along well. Whenever I could give Keith work, I would. I loved his Ditko-esque stuff on when he did Spider-Man with Marv and when he worked with us on Thor. Um, he, he did a fantastic job. Good storyteller. Uh, he knew when to make the stuff big, and he could, he could do the personal stuff too. And um, yes, I couldn't have asked for a better you know, collaborator on the artistic end than, uh, than Keith. We had, a, we had a great time. 301 came out nice too because we had a lot of stuff to finish up there. Um, as well. And, um, you know, Keith was on board for that. So, you know, and then he, he stayed with us for, uh, you know, he was on it a number of issues before 300. You know, I think I had written the Siegfried issue. Mark had written one. I had written one. Uh, Roy, of course, was the head guy on that book for several years, I think, before it. And then we just led up to 300. Mark and I stayed on it for maybe a year or so afterwards, I think, we did before we left. And after you were finished writing, it was Doug Mensch's turn. Is that right? Yes, Doug you? came on after us. Yes. Yeah. And then your your editing association with this title started uh, while Walt Simonson was on the book, right? Yes. Mark Grunewald made the inspired choice uh, to put Walt on that book. Um, Walt, you know, was a guy who, just as a as a, a man, is incredibly intelligent and was far more than just an illustrator. I mean, he was a writer too. So many of those guys back then, John Byrne, Jim Starlin, and Walt, you know, they showed that they had much more to give to the books than being the artists. They also were the writers and creators of concepts and such. And working with Walt was just an incredible experience because um, he had said that Thor was his favorite book when he was growing up. And he basically, um, this is a matter of record, he said that I think when he was in high school, he had basically plotted out the entire Surtur saga 
Oh, um, really? Back then. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I think he put it on notebook paper or something, uh, and and he had it all laid out, uh, you know, for for the day would come when he would take that book over. Um, uh-huh. As I say, that's a matter of record. So, yeah, it was all, all laid out. And um, he was just waiting for the chance. And when Mark put him on the book, it was, you know, an inspired choice. And he did a fantastic job on that. And when we when we concluded it, I was I was lucky enough to work with him on the the better part of his run on the on the book. And um, you know, the concluding chapter with Jormungand, the World Serpent, and all it was just an incredible run. I've always felt that you know, if if you were going to end Thor as a comic, you could have ended it with that issue. You know, yeah. you really had said so much. Not, uh, and of course, what came afterwards, you know, uh, I absolutely loved. But there's even a thing with Spider-Man where you, you know, you could have ended it with that issue where he lifted the stuff, you know, that big thing off him and went after um, Doctor Octopus's right. guys. Because you could say that there was just a high point there that if somebody said, "Okay, where would you end this?" You know, that would be the point, just to to let people know. Of course, what came after it, you know, for years and years was fabulous too. But if you're going to just pick a point, and and you know, we could have ended it with the Simonson thing at, at that point. But of course, you know, Tom and Ron jumped on afterwards and uh, just uh, went to town. And that was a, that was a long run, very satisfying run. Um, you know, we had, we also went from the, uh, the mainstream Thunder God. And, and of course we did uh, Eric Masterson on that. You know, we went, we went in that direction with him and uh, you know, that was also uh, Thunderstrike. So that was fantastic. Tom, you know, it's, it's interesting. Tom tells a story, and I don't, I don't quite remember it, but I have no doubt it's true that initially when I had talked to him and Ron, I asked them to come on Daredevil. Yes, he's told me that story before, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that, you know, he, he wanted to do Daredevil, and you're like, hold on a second, I got something else. I really need a fill-in artist for, for Thor, um, because that's when right. Walton had left. That's, what, that's the way he told me. Um, yeah. But you remember yeah. that a little differently? Uh, no, not that I remember. I, I don't quite remember that sequence. That's why I say I'm sure it's true because I don't remember a, a counter thing to that. I just don't remember that. I'm, I'm not quite sure how they they actually got on the book, except I obviously asked them. But but Tom says, hey, you know, you you asked us to uh, to jump on Daredevil first, and then I I said, um, or they wanted to do Daredevil, if I remember right, wasn't that what? what yeah, Tom that's said? what he that's yeah. what he said to me. Yeah, that's what it was. Yes. And then you're like, well, I really, really need someone on Thor. And then after you do the fill-in, you can do, um, you can go on, onto Daredevil. And then so they did the fill-in, but then you needed another one or something, and it just you just kept on roping them into it. <laughs> That's right, what he just says. kept roping them into it, and they and they they did it, and they they would have done a fantastic job yeah. on Daredevil. I think I think Tom at one point guest starred Daredevil in um, in one or two of the issues or something yes, like that. He did, and, yeah. and you know, of course, yeah, yeah, Ron's interpretation was wonderful. Hark back to the to the Ramita days on that Ramita Senior, and it was uh, it was a wonderful romp. But yeah, no, I'm glad that they stayed on it because Tom, uh, you know, he he and Ron did real justice to that cosmic stuff. Uh, you know, the whole Black Galaxy saga, and the whole celestial thing where they introduced Exitar, who mm-hmm. was kind of the executioner. You know, all that that whole run. Um, I I asked him to kind of do a little New Gods pastiche, and uh, they did that with Nobilis and some of the other characters that they introduced in there. Um, We did the Black Wolf characters later that I had created, and they they put in in Thor 2. And then there were the more Earthbound villains that that came along, too, that I thought were fun, because, you know, the original Thor, such as Mongoose and Quicksand, you know, that was also great, because if you remember the original Lee Kirby run, you know, they interspersed 
the sort of trial of the God stuff with the things that would occur with Mr. Hyde or with some of the other, or the radioactive man, or, you know, characters along those lines who were much more earthbound as villains. And so Tom and Ron could do both the earthbound villains and the cosmic stuff too, you know, reflecting both. So uh, we, we just had everything going with that run. It was great. Yeah, DeFalco's Thor is quite different than Simonson's Thor. Um, did you discuss uh, the direction you wanted to take the character with Tom and, and Ron? You know, I had uh, no overall plan for where we would go with the character. I, I did not have any set direction that, you know, by issue 350 or 325, we should be here with Thor. I just let it go on, um, you know, the, the way they, they had... Uh, they had wanted to. In fact, I don't think Tom Aran really had a, um, you know, a 50 issue plan. I think they started out and, and, and as they got more comfortable with it, they began to realize, um, you know, there were things they could play with. And then, of course, they you know, moved on from the regular Don Blake Thor into the Eric Masterson version of the character, which became Thunderstrike later. And so there, I think they began to, to plan things out, you know, long term. But I did not have a long-term plan for Thor. I, I certainly didn't with Walt because Walt knew exactly where he was going with the character. So I, I you right. know, was with him on it, and I was with Tom and Ron. But there was no um, essential long-term guidance for me, like, hey, let's be here with this character uh, 20 issues from now. <laughs> that makes your job a little easier, I guess. Uh, it was. You're working with guys like that that knew what they were doing. I would sit down and discuss the stuff, of course, issue by issue with Tom and Ron. And, you know, we would, uh, we would go over the characters and what villain was going to be in there. And, uh, you know, I'd read the plots over in the scripts. But I, I didn't set a direction for the book. Um, I didn't think it was necessary. And uh, there's just so many things you can do with Thor that, uh, you know, wherever they wanted to go, I'm sure would have been a good direction. And it was. So Tom and Ron launched the New Warriors in this little run of Thor an issue 412 yeah. and 413. Now, uh, was that their idea to come up with this new team, or was that, did that come from somewhere else? As far as I recall, that was their idea. I think that was Tom and Ron on their own. Um, I, I don't believe I had anything to do with suggesting those characters, except that I thought it was a nice idea to put in there. And, of course, they went off then and had a long run in their own title, and um, yeah. they have been frequently revived. But no, I really had nothing to do with uh, asking for the placement of that or recall a different source from which it came. And then I, I recall in, uh, I can't remember what issue it is, somewhere in the 420 or 430, Thor ends up supposedly killing Loki, which would have been a big decision. Did you did he discuss that with you at all? Oh, yeah. Anything that, that appeared of, to be of that magnitude was something that we would go over. Um, so definitely, yes, we, we had discussed that. What, what are those conversations like? Well, you know, Tom and Ron, because cause Ron was fully a creative partner with Tom. Yes. You know, Ron was far more, really, than just the artist. He, and, and Tom acknowledged that, you know, he, they, they were co-creators in that book. They, they sat down and they discussed, you know, let's do this, this, and this. And then before anything was put on paper, they would sit down and discuss it with me. Um, and, and I would go, okay, you know, and I would make a suggestion, well, maybe we could, you know, parse it this way or move it a little bit that way. If something didn't seem quite right to me in the plot, I would suggest a change, and they were always very amenable to it. Uh, something big like that, you know, I always knew there was an out for it with the killing of Loki, and so, we, you know, it was okay to go ahead with that. Um, but nobody sprung anything on me like, oh, here it is in print, and ah, 
that that didn't happen, you know. <laughs> well, no, good. that that never happened. No. So I was there with him. And you know, something else I have to say to Tom's credit, he was editor in chief at the time I worked with him both on Thor and on the Fantastic Four. And yeah. I never, never felt that I was working with the boss. That that's a remarkable thing because there are times that you as a as an editor could work with the editor in chief as a writer because it's happened in the past and it could be very intimidating because you're aware that you're working with somebody that could fire you or could could frown upon your your decisions on the book and think less mm. of you but when i worked with tom on thor and ff he was always just the writer on that book but he could differentiate his different roles Exactly. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Yes. Yeah, a good yeah. form of words there. Yeah, he could do that. So when I sat down with him, there was never a sense that uh, he's got his EIC hat on and I'm kind of going to want to do this, Ralph, because of this. Never. He was the guy who would sit there like the writer and go, OK, Ralph. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you don't want to do that, we'll, we'll try something else or whatever. When wow. I edited his scripts, there was never a sense that I was working on the boss's scripts. So I had to be very circumspect with my editing. If I needed to edit... I edited it just as I did with any other writer. And I, I really mean that. They're, they're really, it was a remarkable thing. I, I look back on that now and say, you know, it's incredible. Tom was the editor-in-chief, and I worked with him on two books, two mainstream, high-profile titles. And we never, never once did he ever pull rank. Never. Tom strikes me as a very humble person, and I think that plays into it for sure. Yes. And, and again, Tom was a wonderful editor-in-chief, uh, you know, came on board at just the right time for that staff. Was a uh, was terrific for his entire run uh, as EIC because he he was the guy who understood that position from the business end as well as the creative end. You know, he knew it from both ends. He knew how to please the business people. He knew what the upstairs people wanted to see, and he also understood things from the creative end. And he also understood it both ways from the creative end in that he understood it as an editor and as a writer he knew because he had been on both sides of the of the table of the desk really as a writer and editor so when you were working with him he knew what an editor wanted too so uh it was it was great you know tom was just a great all-around guy to work with and as you said very humble if if you say that to him he makes jokes about it but yeah. but the truth is he is a very he is a very humble guy and and ron too is a, as a as an artist i mean here's a guy that could ape kirby that could ape any of the Buscema brothers you know that could do anything he wanted and also had a, a his own style you know that was remarkable too that was just you know the ron friend style that was just so energetic and so powerful and so clean it was a pleasure to see him on anything you know he, he was just uh just fantastic to work with. Was it your suggestion to pair him with Joe Sinnott for this book? I don't think so. I know initially we had another inker on the book um, whose name escapes me at the moment, who was actually very good, and then he dropped off, and then uh, Joe Sinnott came on. But I think initially Ron came on with another another inker, and I, you know, I, I feel terrible. I can't remember his name, but he was very good. But uh, I think the monthly schedule was a little much for him, and then Joe Sinnott came on. It was Brett Breeding. Brett Breeding, that's right. Yes, very yes. talented guy. Very yeah. talented. Ron speaks very highly of Brett. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, no, he's a, he's a good good guy. But Joe Sinnott, I think, was just a little bit better able to, to keep that monthly schedule. Wow, and it, it, it really enhanced the curbiness 
of uh, of yes. the, the look of the book for sure. Oh yeah, and we certainly certainly didn't mind that. It was uh, it was a great adventure to you know to open that book up and ju- just see that that old Kirby power back you know wrapped in the package of Ron. It was uh, it was a wonderful thing because you know he, he as I say Ron would go his own way with it. He had the Kirby explosiveness and power. He could do the Buscema figures. You know, he could he could just do anything, and he still can. Um, and it was, uh, you know, and, and a great guy when you talked with him and all. You know, another thing also that's very interesting about Ron, he was extremely concerned about the coloring on the book. Um, more so than any other penciler that I worked with, Ron was extremely concerned about the coloring. Not that there was anything wrong with that, but it always stuck out to me because I would work, you know, with, with dozens of pencilers and they all were interested in the coloring on the book. But Ron, that was a real sticking point with him that the coloring be exactly the way he wanted it to be on that book. And that was wow. fine because we had good colorists, but he really wanted to know what the coloring looked like. Okay. Wow. Well, yeah. Not, not everybody puts that sort of investment in. That's really neat. Exactly. Yes. Tell me a little bit about Eric Masterson and that transition from him being supporting to being Thor. Well, again, I uh, got to credit Tom and Ron for that that bit, um, and it was very inspirational. Um, uh, you know, to to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take a break from the uh, you know the Don Blake Thor and move here into Eric Masterson, and not him, not have him become Thor, but become a separate character, and then you know start a Thunderstrike comic. That was not a given that that would be successful because we were moving away from Thor into a, you know, with another character and, and another whole godlike identity, Thunderstrike. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really something, you know, it was really a chancy thing. You know, looking back at it now, it seemed like a surefire thing, but it wasn't at the time. There was no guarantee. Um, you know, we could always have fallen back on bringing the original Thor back. But uh, they wanted to go with it, and I was willing to let them go with it. I thought, uh, you know, why not? We've had many, many years of the Don Blake Thor, and, you know, he'll, he'll come back eventually. But for now, let's, let's play around with Eric Masterson. Um, they moved into that quite naturally. As they got more comfortable with the title, as they did the things they wanted to do, um, you know, then they started to really – you start to push the envelope. You know, Tom did that on FF as well. Um, when we uh, said goodbye to Reed and Doom for a couple of years, really, on that book. You know, you get comfortable with the characters and the situations, and then you want to play with them a bit more, and you feel, you feel expansive. And um, this was a case where uh, that's what they wanted to do with it, and, and it turned out to, you know, it worked out beautifully. Yeah, it sure did. Um, and how did the fans like Eric Masterson? Well, I can only say that the book was highly successful, and uh, there were always calls to bring Eric Masterson back um uh, the the mail was very very positive on it um you know we were always sensitive as stan always said you know the real editors are out there and uh he, you know he was right if there had been an extreme negative reaction to eric masterson um you know he would have been gone after a while you don't want to give people things they don't want to read but people enjoyed it they they were kind of refreshed by this different character uh you know one time being four and then becoming thunderstrike and um it was, uh, you know, you had the same team doing it and all, but, but again, as I say, it was kind of chancy. And if I remember right, Tom and Ron came back um, years and years later, and they did a final Eric Masterson Thunderstrike series, if I remember right, I think a six-issue series that kind of wound the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. I think with his son, Kevin, a lot that older. Was it. Yes, that, yeah, with Kevin. That's right. Yes, exactly. And I thought that was terrific. I really thought that was a nice, a nice capper to the whole saga. Really mm-hmm. nice. 
yeah, it seemed like Thor's popularity was getting quite a bit more well, more popular because you had then two yeah. two Thor series basically running at the same time. Plus there was a there's like the there's a Thor Core miniseries and you know special right. events and such. Um, oh yeah, we had Code Blue, I think. Those guys Cold, were initially Cold in Blue. Thor too. Yeah, they they popped they, they popped up too. Thor is just a font of of ideas and secondary characters and concepts and things you know that's why i always gravitated to thor that that whole realm i think i i was just so captivated by the tales of asgard stuff and and again the fact that thor could also fight the cobra and mr hyde i mean what a you know what a combination of villains you know those two guys that was fantastic or, yeah. or they brought Mag- magneto in or magneto for an issue or two or, or another another guy that i loved i was i was telling uh tom brevoort about this recently when we were talking I love Zarko the Tomorrow Man because right. here was a time traveler who wasn't all dressed up in a fancy costume like Kang. He he was like a, he he ran around in coveralls, you know, overalls. This was this was like a this was like a plumber or a mechanic from the far future who was a time traveler. I thought Zarko was was just fantastic. I loved him, and I I uh, I was telling uh, Tom Brevoort how much I liked what uh, Mark Wade had done with him with Zarko in his uh, Hulk run because he did a Zarko the Tomorrow Man story. And I love, more than anything, I just love it when writers will take those characters from way back when and find new ways to integrate them into the current Marvel Universe. Uh, because to me, the, you know, I, I just can't get enough of them. And, uh, and as I say, Zarko, I love the Radioactive Man um, because I'll never forget that cover when I was a kid where Thor had thrown his hammer at the Radioactive Man and it bounced back. You know, <laughs> yeah. I never saw that before. <laughs> right? <laughs> said, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That wow. was that was cool. So you re, you remember those things, and uh, and you know when I had the opportunity to, um, you know I I used uh, the radioactive man in a um, uh, in an Iron Man. Uh, we did a secondary Iron Man series at one point, and I wanted to, you know, see the radioactive man used in there, um, and and you know several of the other characters. Uh, you know, if Zarko if there was ever an opportunity to use Zarko. You know, we would. So it was. It was just. Uh, it was great. And as I say, the secondary characters, the villains that that Tom and Ron brought in. You know, crazy guys like Mongoose and uh, and Quicksand. I also, you know, my favorite Spider-Man villain is Sandman. I just love the idea that uh, this character could sort of turn into anything. You know, just using his uh, his sandy self. And um, so so creating a character to go up against Thor, uh, and this one being a female, an Asian female, Quicksand. I thought it was wonderful too. So I I, I love that uh, that sequence of stories. They were they were just great. One of the biggest crossover stories in the early '90s here is Operation Galactic Storm, uh, which Thor was a part of. Yep. Whose brainchild was that, and how do you go about orchestrating this multi-part story that crosses over so many different books? Well, you know, we we have have always had a very cooperative staff. You know, there there was not that much proprietary feelings that, you know, these are my characters and nobody can touch them and all that. That, that period was, was gone. I mean, it, it existed for a while, um, really kind of before I started at Marvel. But, but as, as we moved on, you know, the, when we got a whole editorial staff up there, you know, people realized that we're all part of one company and if we're going to do big events, everybody's got to share. Um, who came up with Operation Galactic Storm? I really don't know. I know it wasn't me. But I, I do know that working with Bob Harris on that um, was great and seeing those characters, you know, 
go from um, the Avengers book. So whatever, you know, there were several titles that it crossed over into from, uh, you know, it was just great. I, I don't remember how many, I, I do remember just recently looking through the Operation Galactic Storm trade, and I, I was amazed at how many books it had crossed over into and how, how well um, it worked out because everything was very consistent, the characterization, the flow of events, all of that stuff worked out. There weren't any anomalies like you went, oops, we shouldn't have done that because it actually should have occurred later than this. No, no, it all all flowed beautifully. And we had the great Steve Epting and Tom Palmer together on that. And, you know, we had everybody wearing those crazy jackets back then, back in the yeah, right. 80s or 90s. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a good Avengers crew. So, yeah, having Thor involved in that was, um, you know, was, was terrific. And uh, I was editing the Avengers at that time with Bob Harris writing it. So it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. And I don't, as I said, I don't remember um, who came up with it, but I do remember that it was really a, a well-done crossover, that, you know, everybody did their role in it and uh, had a strong climax. And I was very happy with the, yeah. the whole thing. So you were the editor through Thunderstrike as well, right? Yes, I was. Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about Thunderstrike and uh, him moving over to his own title. Well, again, that was a decision. You know, that was that was certainly made by Tom. Um, that you know, that was above my my pay grade, um, and and I think it was a, a smart move. Tom, the editor in chief. Yes, Tom, the editor in chief. That was part of the publishing schedule. You know, that was uh, something that Tom knew would be a you know, if if if, if the character was was successful at um, taking over the Thor title, that would be nice to to start up with his own his own series. And if I remember correctly, I think the first villain that we had in the first issue was called Carjack, I think. Yep. And um yeah, that was kinda that was kinda crazy because I know people some I think were expecting, oh your first issue, you're gonna bring in Galactus or something. I said, no, we got something a little offbeat. <laughs> and it was and it was wild because it wasn't quite expected for the for, for that first issue. But again, I think it worked out very well. We had a lot of uh, a lot of fun with it. Uh, I know that that at the time, um, actually, Ron had a, had a you know a couple of personal things going on, so he was a bit late with that first issue. But once once he got together, uh, got himself together on it, uh, it turned out you know spectacularly well. And then we we just went on from there, and it was really uh, really a great run, and and really um, I was I was happy to see it. I mean, my my heart will always be with the original Don Blake Thor. Um, but, uh, but this guy, you know, Eric Masterson was a, became a real character. You know, he became someone that, uh, that had a reality to him as well, just the way Don Blake did. And, uh, so it was okay. You know, it was, it was, uh, the, the personal life that, that he led and all of all of the things he became a fully realized three dimensional figure in that book. So having him become his own version of Thor, um, I think was a logical uh, logical outgrowth, and uh, and I I was very happy to work on that too. Tom told me that from the very beginning of introducing Eric Masterson, he always knew that he was going to die. That Eric was going to die. Uh, did he give you a heads up about that? I think he played that for a while, close to the vest. But at one point, I think he did tell me that, and I said, you know, uh, it's a shame, but if you've got the life cycle of this character laid out. Okay, so be it. I mean, I was not going to stand in the way and say no. You, you know, you shouldn't do that or whatever. If they had a a real effective means of bringing about his end, something that would, would you know, maintain and give give further meaning to his life and to his existence as a character in a Marvel comic, that was fine. 
Um, you know, I've, I've always... See, the thing with me is I love all the Marvel characters so much, even the goofy ones, you know, that I don't ever want to see any of them die. Because to me, there's always another story to tell with them. And on one hand, that makes me, you know, a little bit uh, very old-fashioned. Um, but, but people have said, but, you know, Marvel was founded on the idea that characters die and things change. And all. I said, I know that, but, you know, I kind of reached a point with the characters where I almost wanted to freeze them in place. You know, you go, this is the way I like them. This is just the way I want them to be. So uh, even a, a newer character like Eric Masterson, I was sorry to see that happen. But again, it, it gave additional meaning and gravitas to him as a character. And he went out with uh, drama and dignity. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a strong, strong story. Yeah. So um, it was okay. Yeah, it was really a it was a fitting end for him. You know, if a character dies and it's an unimpressive ending, then you go, boy, you know, we kind of wasted that. But but if the character goes out with with, uh, you know, with some some real gravitas that there's some importance to this figure existing and and, you know, it was uh, set that he needed to die um, and that was his his life course. Okay. You know, and they did it. They pulled it off, and he had his uh, he had his character arc beautifully done. So um, it was, you know, as I say, sad to see, but uh, kind of necessary from what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. And I know that Thunderstrike, the comic, was a yeah. casualty of some of the financial issues that Marvel was going through at the time. I believe so. Yes, they, you know, Marvel went through a difficult period there for a while, and it was tough, you know, to to sell books, you know, almost anything at that, at that point in time. And there had to be some casualties, uh, regardless of who was working on it. And unfortunately, um, you know, it was one, but again, Eric Masterson, you know, did find a way to, uh, to reach a fitting conclusion to his life. So in the long run, it, you know, it did work out. So that was good. That was good. But Thor has just got, you know, again, even, even when I worked on it on this, this last run, um, before I, I left staff full time, it was, you know, fantastic to work with those characters again you know i work with matt fraction and uh olivier coipel and we had a galactus odin fight in there and i remember i, I remember getting a call from matt fraction at one point i know we're deviating a little bit from ron and tom here but yep. i got a call from from uh, him at that point and he he was saying we were on exactly the same wavelength he goes if you're going to have galactus fight odin you don't want them to punch one another how do you have a fight between those two? And we were just, I remember the way, you know, you don't want them to start throwing punches because that, that sort of reduces it to a physical level. And that's not what, it's a fascinating thing to see characters of that power level go at one another. But at the same time, you know, how do you choreograph a fight between beings of that level? Yeah. Um, you know, so anyway, we did figure something out and I think that was very effective, but, but again, it all goes back to what a great character Thor is and that, that whole world that is circulated around him since the very beginning, you know, from the, the furthest reaches of the nine or ten realms, you know, all the way down to, to fighting the Wrecker, you know? Yeah, right. It's, uh, right? Thor did it all, the yep, Absorbing yep. Man and the Wrecker. And it doesn't seem out of place. It's all, it all fits. Exactly. It all fits. There was a reason. And, you know, the Wrecker got his power because, if I remember right, Carnilla thought that it was Loki, you know, instead, and that, that, that's how the record became, you know, got the, the bar enchanted. But here's a guy that went around with a, with a crowbar, you know, that was, was fighting Thor. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was, 
it's great, you know, and it, it, they made it work. To me, Thor is so adaptable as a character with such a vast cast and a world that you can play with that you can go from a Walt Simonson, you know, geared a bit more towards the Norse mythology end of things into the Tom and Ron run. And you, you can just pass the baton from one to the other. And even though initially it may be a little bit of a jarring change, it's still Thor. Yeah. You know? Even Frog Thor. Even Frog Thor. It's still Thor. I, in <laughs> fact, I remember Tom, when Tom heard about the Frog Thor thing, he had, he had, his, he had his reservations about it, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I said, come on, let's give it a shot. Walt knows what he's doing. So they went ahead with it, and, uh, you know, it worked, out, it worked out beautifully. You know, uh, a lot of times I think uh, if, if a writer or a creator, you know, comes up with something and it may sound hokey, in retrospect, it's not that hokey because years later people go, you know, I really love that thing. So I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that I'm open to the, to the new ideas, to, to what may seem initially a little crazy or maybe, you know, it's not, um, uh, you know, being dignified for Thor to be turned into a frog or whatever. But let it go. You know, let's see what happens. And, and inevitably, people always bring it up when they talk about the Simonson run. <laughs> they talk about Thor turn. It's definitely a memorable <laughs> moment, yeah. It certainly was. <laughs> and, uh, and we had a lot of them during Tom and Ron's run, too. So it was, uh, you know, we, we did so many things in there, and they played around with so many of the, the big concepts that it was, uh, you know, and I never tire of them, too. Whenever, whenever I get the chance, more recently, when I, I had edited a series with Rob Rohde that had ego in it. And uh, again, another Thor concept. And I was never satisfied with the, with the ego origin. So I said, let's do a definitive origin. And we played around with the idea that the stranger really had created ego, gave sentience to this planet, and then created an alternate version of it that was in captivity. So you see how two of them would develop. Because the stranger is our sort of our our Metron character. He's sort of the, the cosmic experimenter and, and um, scientist type character. So, um, you know, it, it just, you never run out of things to do with those characters. You know, I love the Eulica troll storyline. Um, you know, that initial uh, Lee Kirby Eulick story. I mean, I go back and reread that constantly. That, that was just, uh, yeah. for me, that was just one of the high points. You had a Reichel in there. And uh, it took me years, by the way, because I'm not that smart, it took me years, by the way, to figure out that Oracle actually meant Oracle. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I don't remember when it finally hit me. <laughs> Oracle. That's why he could, he, he could see so far ahead and, and, you know, told the trolls what was going to happen and all that. He was, he was Oracle. Right, That's what right. it was. But they can, well, <laughs> chalk up one for my stupidity. But, <laughs> but I love that story. And, yeah. and again, you know, whenever Ulick would come back, here's a guy that could go toe-to-toe with Thor. You know, just he had his pounders and Thor had the hammer and they could go at it, you know, big time. So it was uh, it was great because I love that on all levels, as, as you know, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. What was life like after Tom and Ron left the book? You had a, a few different people over mm-hmm. the course of 30 issues or so. Ron Mars and Roy Thomas came back for a bit and Warren Ellis. Can you tell me a little bit about these guys? Yeah, I... At that point, um, I was a little bit more removed from the book because I think Mike Rockwitz, um, I think, had taken over as the actual editor, and I, I became the senior editor on it. So I was a little bit more removed from the, the plots on that. But I know both those guys. Of course, you, you know, uh, Ron Mars was a talented guy. 
Um, and Roy, you know, the old hand who could do no wrong, you know, yeah. he came back on with some beautiful stuff. Yeah. And um, I do remember also with Warren Ellis, what had happened was we'd reached the point where I know they wanted to shake things up and they were concerned, you know, about the challenges we had from other companies and all that. So we were, we were, you know, told to shake things up and then see what happens. So I went with a completely different direction on Thor. Um, I put Warren Ellis and Mike Diodato on it. I said, you know, this would be something nobody would expect. Let's see where it goes. And they came up, uh, Warren came up with the world engine story, yeah. which again, you know, played into the Yadrasil, the tree of life thing. And it worked again. It worked beautifully. Mike Diodato's artwork was, and even though it only ran three or four issues or however, however it ran, it was a memorable thing. that has been reprinted multiple times. And I was very happy. That was also at the same time that I put Wade and Garney on Captain America. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and Mark Wade has now been brought back three times on Captain America. Right. So he, he did something right there, and so did Ron Garney. Um, but I also, at the, concurrently, I put um, Warren and, um, and Mike on Thor and uh, shook that book up, too. So we, we had, uh, you know, it changed the costume completely, and Warren had, a, you know, certainly a, an interesting take on Thor too so it was something I was okay with because we had done many many years you know of uh, you know Tom and Ron and Walt and all so you know I said let's go and you know just change directions radically and uh, and we did so I was uh, again very pleased with it but Thor you know being so adaptable you could do almost anything you wanted with him and uh, and if the writer was capable and and the artist was uh, capable you'd get a good story out of it was uh, was Warren Ellis fairly new to the industry at that time? You know, I really don't know. I guess it was back in the 90s that we did it, and I don't recall reading that much of Warren's stuff. So I guess he was, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall that many other things he'd done, but I know he had done a few things that had impressed me. I thought he would give uh, a really interesting take uh, to Thor uh, when, I, when I asked him about doing it. So um, I guess he was, you know, fairly new and had been known for, for things that were not necessarily superhero oriented. Um, but I thought he would, uh, I thought he'd give a different flavor to, to Thor, and he certainly did. Nice. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Working on that book had, had always been a very, very rewarding thing for me because I love the character from the first issue that I picked up. And I don't even remember what the first issue was. I, I do, you know, I do recall... Um, even when I was a kid, I remember getting the, the issue that had the destroyer in it. I think it was Journey into Mystery 112. And I remember walking home with it from the candy store. And I was so, I couldn't wait to get into it. I didn't even get to the house. I stopped by a construction site. They were building some houses near me. And I, I got inside one of these gigantic concrete tubes that they were, they were putting down for, um, uh, for water flow or whatever it was. And I just sat in there and I opened that book up and I remember being, I, I just never forgot the panel where the destroyer has this bolt of limitless force that blazes from his fingers. I even remember the, the, you know, the, the caption and it cut Mignolner in two. And I thought that's impossible. How could that happen? <laughs> yeah. That, right. That could never happen. And then you get to the end of the story and he, Thor has fallen halfway through the floor and then the destroyer has has changed the floor to the hardness of Asgardian diamonds and he's now got a blast of 
disintegrating you know power or, or some power beam is coming right to Thor, and you had to wait a month to find uh, out what was going to happen. Wow! And I just never forgot that. And yeah. you know, it was I loved Spider Man. I loved you know the more Earthbound characters too, but. But Thor and Doctor Strange, you know, could take you to the outer reaches of your imagination. As far as you wanted to, as far out as you wanted to think, those two characters were there to greet you. And uh, so it was always just, uh, just a wild ride. And I, I learned so much about mythology, you know, from, from reading Thor. And I also applaud Stan for doing the pseudo-Shakespearean dialogue. You know, but for for not having, for not being afraid that this was a comic that kids were going to read and that they might, you know, lose track of it because he would he would sort of be doing these and thous and all that. I thought that was wonderful. That was a way of of, of elevating and and distinguishing Thor from the other characters too. And I remember somebody at one point telling me, "Well, isn't that isn't that silly to have a, a you know a Norse god talking in pseudo Shakespearean?" And I said, "No, wait a minute." Hamlet was a Dane, and he talked that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I said, nobody ever complained about Hamlet talking in pseudo-Shakespearean dialogue, yeah. and he was Danish. So they said, all right, all right, all right. So that never bothered me. And, and you know, it could be toned down a little bit, uh, and, and it did get toned down a little later on. But I thought that, that flowery stuff was wonderful for Thor, because you didn't get that anywhere else. That You know, if, if you knew it was Thor speaking. It wasn't anybody else. You knew it was Thor. It was... Uh, it was just great. It was just great. And uh, yeah. even the current stuff they're doing in Thor is fantastic, too. You know, some of that stuff with Jane Foster now and all, really, uh, really wild stuff. Yeah. Um, I especially like when uh, Thor and Hercules get together. <laughs> it's yeah. always um, not only a, a big battle, but uh, there's just a, this odd couple camaraderie <laughs> that they have yep. that they share. It's really funny. Yep. They really do have a, a, an interesting relationship between, between the two of them. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting, too, because uh, I love the Olympian gods as well. And so when Thor made that first trip to Olympus, where, you know, we met the red-bearded Zeus, you know, Marvel Zeus for the first time, and Hercules and the, you know, the Greek gods, the Olympian gods, that was also incredible because here we were steeped in Norse mythology and Thor, and then all of a sudden, Lee and Kirby introduce the Greek gods, the you know the Olympians. Yeah. Wow. You know Zeus, he's as powerful as Odin is, and Hercules, he's about as powerful as Thor is, and you've got all you know got Hermes and uh, all the rest of them, and wow, and, and then that they, was great. And then they took it a step further and had Pluto come in there. There was the That's battle right. between Pluto and Hercules and Thor. That was great. Where Thir- Hercules put his thumbprint on the ca- on the contract. Yeah. And he, you know, was condemned to the netherworld because Pluto was was actually playing a, uh, a I think a movie agent producer, or something. yeah, movie producer, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, yes, fantastic. Yes. Who would think of doing something like that? That was just, you know, that whole series of stories because you, you, you went through all that Thor's descent into the netherworld, and then then you'd come back, and then they would go out into space, and they did the colonizer story with uh, you know Rigel and uh, the colonizers, and then they moved into the ego story, you know, you had the recorder took Thor to the black galaxy and they ran into ego. And then you Galactus would pop up for just a page because he was poking around to see what was going on in the black <laughs> galaxy. Yeah. Then they had the high evolutionary and all of that craziness with him. Um, you know, and it just went on and on and on. And you know, your mind was completely blown. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting too, that 
all this stuff that that we read in those comics as kids, those things are now on screen today, and they are taking the entire world. Yes, by it's storm. incredible. Yeah, isn't it something? I never, you know, I pinch myself sometimes that I was in on that stuff when it came out that I was a kid, a ten or twelve year old kid. And all of that stuff, the Lee Kirby and the Lee Ditko stuff and the, you know, Lee Heck stuff on Iron Man, I was reading that stuff and taking it all in and people were, were looking at me like, we don't read these comic books. What's wrong with you? And all of that, all of the, the characters and the concepts and the supporting characters today, they're billion dollar movies. Look at, look at the Black Panther. It's incredible. Right, isn't it? Two issues of Fantastic Four. Yeah. That's what he was introduced in. And now it's not only a billion-dollar movie, but I've seen people on television. I just was watching something the other night. I was switching stations, and they had on these two highly intelligent people from the BBC that they were discussing vibranium. They were discussing <laughs> the metal vibranium. That's so funny. And it was incredible. And yeah, you go, yeah. this is a serious discussion about vibranium, because the woman was, was asking a legitimate question. She was going, well, in the Black Panther, they have this metal called vibranium, which um, has allowed Wakanda to grow uh, and become technologically advanced. Well, what about in other countries in, in the, you know, the, the world like Rhodesia, which had the diamonds and all, you know, and, and the, the other woman who was, um, she was a professor of uh, media studies at uh, a university. And she said, yes, of course, it's, it's fascinating that they, they thought to do that, that uh, they could parallel the real world with this, because in, in Africa with the diamonds, you know, you, you would have that, that had such an effect on the African societies back yeah. then, the exploitation that occurred in things. Um, and here, you know, Stan and Jack turn that whole thing on its head by giving you a technologically advanced society and giving you a character who wasn't really a superhero, but, but he was almost a sacred figure within that society, the Black Panther. And when you see the kids, you know, go into this movie and, and even the adults saying, this meant so much to me. This, this was, you know, and you go, I read this 50 years ago, and here it is affecting the world. He's on the cover of Time magazine. He's on the cover of Rolling Stone. I, I looked at it last week. You know, they have the Black Panther Revolution. Yeah. This is unbelievable. We're, you know, we're living through this, that our, our little Marvel Comics world is the biggest thing in popular culture. Maybe the biggest yeah. thing ever in popular culture. Well, and not just the main characters, but the... The small-time characters, like Guardians of the yes. Galaxy, are becoming the biggest things, you know? It, biggest thing in the world. It's the just, television yeah, it's show. remarkable, remarkable. It really is. We're, we're living through, we don't realize it, but we're living through a golden age of the media exploitation. Maybe that's not the right word. Or, or <laughs> the, you know, the, the media um, adaptations of, of these great characters and concepts. You know, we're, we're going to be in a couple of weeks or a month or so, we're going to be sitting there and we're going to be watching... Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet yeah. up on the screen, and that's already guaranteed to make a billion dollars. There's oh, no yes. way that's that's not going to make a billion. And all the characters are going to be in there: Spider-Man, Doctor Strange. And I sit there and watch these things, and I go, you know, I never, my wildest dreams would have believed that one day, character after character from Marvel would just be up there on screen taking over popular culture that you know people now are going around and they're 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 just sort of crossing their arms going wakanda forever you know it's yeah. becoming a, a thing now politicians are doing it and and you know educators and all that and the entertainers 
so yeah it's uh it's just beyond belief it really is and and you know you have to take your hat off to those guys at marvel studios for what they've done kevin feige and the directors and actors and all that it's just been uh it's just been note perfect and uh you know my hat's off to them it's a brilliant brilliant job and they had the source material to work from yeah. you know you gotta gotta yep. hand it to stan and jack and steve and those guys because they created that source material on a monthly basis that we could mine forever well, we have to tip our hats to the great editors of the 90s, the 80s and 90s as well, because so much of the content from these movies is directly from the 80s and 90s. Well, that, that's certainly some truth to that, too. Yes, there, there is truth to that. I, and, you know, it's interesting you mention that because when I was out on the West Coast and I, I was privileged enough to be on the Thor set with Walt Simonson and his wife Louise, and we had been asked to have a tiny little, you know, a little bit part in the Thor movie by Kevin Feige, which was just wonderful. I remember uh, catching Kenneth Branagh, the director, between scenes. And I, I said, Mr. Branagh, I said, the fact that you're working on a Thor, you know, a Marvel Comics movie, I said, is such an honor, you know, to, to just be talking to you and to know that someone of your credentials and your pedigree is doing a Marvel Comics movie. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, Ralph, you have to realize, if you didn't put out all those comics, we wouldn't be here doing this movie. Yeah. So it was a really nice, I mean, I was, I was floored and flattered by what he said. So um, I, I, that's very similar to what you mentioned, too, and uh, that's nice to hear. We, we tried to keep the faith. We always yep. tried with those characters to treat them with the reverence that they deserved because when we were growing up, they fueled our imagination as, as few other things could. And so when you had the chance to work on them later, either as a writer or an editor, you wanted to treat them with kid gloves because you said, you know, these were the most important things to me when I was a kid. It wasn't a baseball glove. It was a Marvel comic. And that, that means that when you have the chance to handle these, these things now, you handle them with kid gloves and you treat them with respect and you pass them on to the next guy too. With right. Respect. Yeah. Wow. Well, that seems like a great place to end. I thank you again for joining us on the show for a third time now. It's been uh, what what a great chance to talk to you. It's always, always <laughs> fun. Same here, Curtis. You're, you're talking about the stuff that's very near and dear to my heart. So, Anytime, I'm I'm up for for chatting with you about this stuff. It's great, and it's great that that you know you're you're doing this too, and that you're talking to the guys who who created all this stuff later on. And um, you know, it's uh, it's wonderful that, that you're passing it on that way to the audience.